the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio. Carol, a nationally known gerontologist, a member of the board of the National Council on Aging, where she is the chair and serves as executive director for the WellMed Charitable Foundation. And in just a couple of moments, we're going to talk with uh, a young woman who has uh, created a series of podcasts called Age Wise. Uh, Jana Pederitas uh, is going to join us and tell us about how she really fell uh, into caregiving. Well, and I love a combination of caregiving, storytelling, journalism, which is a really interesting background. Amazing background. And we will talk with her in a couple of moments. But before we do that, uh, we're getting ready to do the show. And we talk about different uh, items in the news that you have come up with. And you said you'd come across an Alzheimer's nasal spray. And I said... Why would I want to get Alzheimer's, whether it's a nasal spray or not? That's right. So this came from the Mayo Clinic, which probably will let you know it doesn't give you Alzheimer's disease. But um, somebody actually wrote into their website and asked the question that they'd heard about a cure for or a treatment for Alzheimer's um, that was in a nasal spray. And guess what's in the nasal spray? Insulin. Really? So, yeah, the answer came back. It was insulin. Yes, that insulin, which is a, a hormone that helps regulate your blood sugar. That's right. what people with diabetics get insulin shots. Um, and insulin appears to play a role in normal memory processes. So, um, and, and there's, a, there's a very high correlation between diabetes and, and cognitive impairment. People who have diabetes and have had uncontrolled diabetes, high sugar, low sugar, high sugar, low sugar, over a period of years will actually cause memory loss, and it's diabetic-related. So, you know, there's changes in the brain related to insulin. So in the past several years, Mayo Clinic and other places have been investigating um, the use of insulin. But the trick is, how do you give someone who isn't diabetic, doesn't have blood sugar problems, but does does have Alzheimer's insulin without screwing up their blood sugar, because by giving them insulin, they don't have... You they know, lower the, the blood sugar. You lower the blood sugar, and then you're going to have heart palpitations and anxiety and visual disturbances. You're going to throw them all out of whack, and they'll pass out. Um, so that's a bad thing. All of those are bad. Uh, so the preliminary research um, says that, yeah, you can do it in a nasal spray, um, and it can, in a very short uh, period of time, because you're spraying it right into the nasal cavities, really close to the brain, it can actually improve uh, cognitive functioning. For people that have early Alzheimer's or mild cognitive impairment, so this is not something you would give somebody that has very advanced stage Alzheimer's, but it's under clinical trial, and it's kind of interesting. And now don't go shooting up with insulin. In your nasal spray, please, 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 do not put insulin in a nasal spray container and spray it up your nose. Please don't do that. Talk to the Mayo Clinic. Talk to the This is for professionals only. That'd be pretty cool, though, if it works. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I had not heard that, so it was... Kind of caught my eye. Talking about things that turn out to be maybe a plus when you think they're a negative, obviously diabetes and need to take insulin can be a negative, but here could be an upside with uh, the nasal spray approach. Uh, if you take a look at depression, it is so widespread uh, across this country, and I suspect around the world people of almost any age can struggle with depression. It leads to the obvious question, is there an upside to depression. Well, the interesting um, article that I found on BigThink.com, which is, I know, something I love that Big you... I BigThink. Yeah, Ron, you're the one that introduced me to BigThink.com, um, was that they're, you know, they're saying that depression, that as humans, 
we evolved, and at the time, back in the Stone Age, depression actually served a purpose to help us evolve. Um, and so it was a good thing originally. Maybe it's not so much now um, because we our suicide's at a 30-year high. Um, and we, did you know that we have more deaths um, from suicide than, than car accidents and war combined right no. now? No, no. Um, and so that's a pretty startling thing. But depression had a role. And, and think about people who, you know, you know, or if you've had depression, you might know. Depression, you know, in the brain, it's help. What do people who are depressed do? They ruminate. They think about maybe one thing over and over and over again. And so originally that may have helped us problem solve. How do we get out of this cave? You know, yeah. how do we be, create fire? Um, you know, we got to figure this out. How do I, how do I make out. a wheel? That's right. What's what? You know, why? What's better than this square thing on the bottom of my cart? Um, so <laughs> it was, you know, helping us to to think through problems. Um, and then people who are depressed also sleep more than usual. What does sleeping do? Sleeping helps us consolidate our memories. And so again, when you're caveman Joe. Uh, you consolidating your memories, you can learn things, you can put things together, remember them, and advance further. Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Just a couple of moments, we're going to talk to uh, Jada Pederist, uh, who, who is a uh, young Jana Pederist, uh, who is a young woman down in Florida who started Age Wise Podcasts, and we're going to get her story and Did that I has nothing. And that has nothing to do with depression. Age wise, no. is, are there great stories? And she would like the story of how depression used to be. Yes, she would. Something that you know helped us to advance socially and um, technologically, and was actually. It may be something that, I don't know, I'm thinking of cockroaches who have been around forever, and I think alligators lived back in the prehistoric days, too. Um, But it's something that's come out of our prehistoric past uh, that we've carried into the future that maybe is not as useful as it used to be now that we are out Uh, in the open. I think that's probably true. Now, proving that we have memory on this show, last week we were talking about seven daily practices that are bad for your heart. It started out with remote controls because people got no exercise uh, if you're using that. And we had gotten up to number four. And I wanted to pick up on that because there are folks taking notes. I know. Uh, so if you were taking notes last week, good for you. That's excellent. So we did. We left off with teeth and taking care of your health. Because we know the disease that can come from yeah, because you bad get, teeth. Yeah, periodontal disease is very, very oh. bad. You would be terrified if you saw all the germs that live in your mouth. You might, your heart, uh, yes. You'd probably stop talking if you yeah. saw that. Um, so number five is these are warning signs that we don't – That uh, I'm sorry. These are bad things that are bad for your heart. So number five is um, you don't know your blood pressure and you don't know your cholesterol level. So it, people may mistakenly think they can feel high blood pressure. And I have to tell you, that's why more women die of heart disease. It's because they have high blood pressure. Caregivers are stressed out, um, and they don't know it. You can't feel your blood pressure unless you take it every once in a while. You don't know it. And if you have high cholesterol, that leads to heart disease. You can have super high cholesterol, feel just fine, thank you very much. Until you die. Um, Yeah, until you have a major heart attack. So you need to know your numbers. Um, Very, very dangerous. Uh, Number six is too much salt. And I know that there's some jury out on this one. Um, if you're healthy, salt's not a problem. But if you do have high blood pressure, salt is a problem. So you need to know if you have high blood pressure. And if you do, you need to stay away from the salt. And there's some other, you know, nice spices that you could use. I'm a saltaholic, and I need to break the habit of salting before I taste. Ooh, Bad salting habit. before you taste. Bad habit. Yeah, and then, you know, in, and there are some, if you were interviewing for a job, there are some people who wouldn't hire you if you didn't taste your food first. Really? Show how impulsive you are that you salted without tasting, Ron. Ooh. Ooh. I know, it wounds you. I, okay, so moving on. Number seven is you see the glass half empty. And I, and I, that, in other words, you're one of those people who's very pessimistic and negative and, you know, your emotions are tied to your heart. Why does your heart hurt when you have sad emotions? Um, Emotions can stress you out, make you anxious. Think about Debbie Reynolds and um, her daughter, Carrie Fisher. And did she die of a broken heart? That's extreme, right? Um, But your emotions do carry weight. They really, if you're feeling sad, stressed, you release hormones that go into your body. 
um, changes your blood sugar, keeps you from sleeping, can cause all kinds of bad things to happen. Continuing along this path about negative about things the, that can I know kill people us. are like, my goodness, let me just turn off this radio show and I feel much better. You found eight symptoms we No, 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 no. I have to tell you the last oh. one. I thought we'd done that. Okay. No, the I'm sorry. very last one you have to do, which is good for your heart, oh. is you need to drink coffee. I do drink coffee. So um, a Harvard study says three to nine cups of coffee a day. I don't I know. I can't drink that Those many. Harvard people were drinking a lot of coffee when they wrote this down. Three, three to, to nine, nine cups? cups of coffee. So watch your caffeine. That's caffeine. an eight-ounce cup. Caffeine wow. may actually be good for you. There's more and more stuff that shows that, you know, caffeine really? can do some good things. So just because you're depressed or too much, you know, gave up the salt doesn't mean you have to give up your coffee. Very Back important. Back to the coffee. Now, eight symptoms we ignore but oh, we should gosh. really worry about. Now we're counting down to eight, right? Yeah. Like, okay, do we have time to do all eight? We do. Eight? We have two minutes. We have two minutes to do all two eight. And all and right. Half. Three minutes. Symptoms you don't worry about, but you should, because we're going to give it to you all the bad news at once today right. in the show, and then Jan is going to make you feel much better. Okay, so sleepy during the day for no reason. And if you haven't had a good night's sleep and you're sleepy, that's one thing. But if you're always falling asleep during the day, you might have sleep apnea. You might not be getting enough oxygen when you are sleeping. And that's a bad thing. Um, for men, and you hear this on commercials a lot, erectile dysfunction can be a, mean a problem with heart disease. Oh. So that's why they say talk to your doctor uh, whenever you're having problems and you're a guy. And I'm going to go on to number three quickly. <laughs> number three, unintentional weight loss. So unintentional weight gain, unintentional weight loss is never a good thing. It could be thyroid problems. It can be cancer. Anytime you have a rapid change in weight, um, that's always, and that could include in your loved one if you're a caregiver. It's not a good thing. Um, if you have a persistent cough, like I've been coughing today, but uh, hopefully it's not COPD, um, it's what we used to call emphysema, right? So a right. persistent cough uh, is actually something that needs to be treated. Number five, a lot of people have frequent urination. That can be a symptom of diabetes. So if you're going to the bathroom more than you you know, think you should. Um, you need to get that checked out. And if you're, you know, if you're an older person and you're a guy, just you know, you can talk to your doctor about that. Um, so if, you can couple that with a discussion about erectile dysfunction. Yes, yeah, you can just put it on a bottle of wax. So if you're always slipping and losing your balance, um, you know, you need to uh, talk to your tell your doctor that you're having some balance problem because you could have a neurological problem. You could have a medication issue that's causing you to fall. Um, one thing you would probably notice if you have chronic constipation, I think that would probably get your attention. Um, again, that one can be associated with colorectal cancer. And the last really fun thing I can talk about is chest, arm, and neck discomfort during exercise. That can be blocked arteries, coronary artery disease. Not a good sign. So, you know, the bottom line on this, and I think it's important for caregivers and care recipients, is a lot of us, you know, you need to be in touch with your body. It is sending you signals. So if your loved one or your body is telling you something's not right, something feels different, you know, listen to that little voice in your head or the little ping in your body um, and, and think, is this something I should be concerned about? It's not always nothing. That's Elmo's potty time. We play for the kids all the time. Listen to your body. Listen to your body. Elmo always knew that. We love Elmo. Yeah, Elmo always says the best things to say. We're going to pick you up in just a minute with uh, Jana Panaritas, who's going to talk about her podcast, Age Wise, coming your way on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. You hear us at 930 AM, The Answer. If you're Medicare eligible, have I got a great deal for you absolutely free and it's full of fun you can explore all of the stuff at the new witty on broadway join wellmed for wellmed day at the witty 10 a.m to noon thursday september 21st and you'll enjoy the new witty and a chance to meet all of the great folks at wellmed free food too join us on September 21st at the Witty, 3801 Broadway, no registration needed. For caregivers and healthcare professionals, the 2017 WellMed Charitable Foundation Caregiver Summit is for you at the Whitley Theological Center on Oaklade, November 9th, 8.30 to 3. Featured speakers include AARP columnist and psychologist Barry Jacobs on helping seriously ill loved ones and caregivers. Dr. Nicholas Musi, Farshop Institute, gives us the latest on research on Alzheimer's and aging, and Cynthia Hazel talks about mindfulness. Attendance is free, but registration required at caregiversos.org social worker CEUs and nursing CNEs available 
Well, we kept promising, and we like to deliver what we promise. So uh, we're going to be joined in just a moment by uh, Jana Panaritis, who uh, has been the driving force behind Age Wise Podcast. I'm Ron Aaron, and Carol Zorniel, our co-host, is here. So we welcome Jana to our Caregiver SOS On Air Hotline. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you both. Now, for those who don't know, what is the AgeWise podcast? Well, the AgeWise podcast was created a little less than two years ago on the heels of a book that I wrote about the first year of my three year of three years of living with my mother after my father died. So, in researching my book, I learned that there were literally millions of people like me, caregivers, who were exhausted from juggling work and personal needs, was taking family members to medical appointments and figuring out how to navigate a very confusing healthcare system with little or no support, and doing so largely in isolation. But I wasn't hearing their stories, which was really shocking to me that something so widespread was, in my mind, being swept under the rug. So I wanted to give voice to these what I call unsung heroes, and I have a media background, uh, but I wanted to celebrate and acknowledge the extraordinary work that they were doing. So I decided to create the podcast to give them a voice. You actually uh, have a, a degree from an incredible institution, a joint degree from the Annenberg School of Communications and Journalism in the School of International Relations. Annenberg has such a fine reputation. Well, what I, I have to add, what I love is your master's in public diplomacy. I think that <laughs> may, may be the very best degree I've ever heard for a caregiver. <laughs> you learn to be diplomatic. You learn to be patient. You learn to listen. You learn how to help your care tell their story, which, which is what public diplomacy is all about. It's telling America's story to the world. And um, it's useful, more useful than I thought it would be. <laughs> what led you into that? Into the degree itself? Yes, yes. Well, um, you know, Greeks, I'm Greek, and Greeks often get degrees just for the sake of it. Well, I was <laughs> partly because I was interested in combining my, my interest in politics with my communications background, and I wanted to go into the area of cultural diplomacy. I wanted to use film to reach um, foreign audiences as, as a bridge to other cultures. So this was a new degree program. I was working as a uh, criminal litigation paralegal in a small Los Angeles law firm, and I'd been there for three years, and I was bored, and I wanted to do something more constructive and more entertaining, more exciting, and so I decided to pursue the degree. At, uh, I think I was really looking for a way to check out of reality, <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> and going back to school was the, the perfect way to do that in my mind. Of course, USC is a great campus, and I wound up being probably the oldest person in my class, because at the time I started my graduate school program, I was 47, and I graduated when I was 49. So it was really, really Quite an exposure and a great, great time in my life. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Well, well um, talk a little bit about your mother and what her condition was, why you felt like you needed to move in with her after your father passed away. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, that was a real shocker. And I can point to a specific encounter I had with my mom. I was in Los Angeles, California. I was living in L.A. when my father died, and I grew up in Washington, in the outskirts of Washington, D.C. I was raised in the suburbs of Maryland, and uh, I left the area soon after college, and like a lot of young folks, after I left, I swore I would never come back, and that was 1983, and uh, fast forward to November 2009, my parents were still living in Maryland, and I was living in L.A., and I was really having a hard time with my career, and uh, two days before Thanksgiving, my father died unexpectedly of heart failure. So I flew east for the funeral, and in that moment that I mentioned earlier, I, I got into the house, I saw my mother in the hallway, and I had almost this otherworldly experience of feeling like I was now going to be her parent. I saw my mother in the hallway. She was then 80 years old. She was so shell-shocked at the loss of her partner of 56 years, my dad. She and my dad had been married for that long. And my mother was so distraught, she could barely function. So the idea of her living alone in that house made me very anxious, and I knew she wasn't gonna move. 
So I made a really difficult decision at a difficult time in my life, notwithstanding the fact that my father had just died. Um, after swearing off D.C. as a youth, I came back in middle age, and I moved into the house I grew up in. Uh, and it's, I always say it, it was about rebuilding two lives at once, my mother's and my own, because my, my career really was in the ditch. You know, I don't make any bones about that. And um, I really didn't know what was going to happen next. And so when I saw my mother and how distraught she was and how much help she needed and how much help I needed, uh, we really needed each other. I decided to move in with her. But, of course, like most caregivers, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And what was your mother's reaction when you said, Mom, I'm moving in? <laughs> she said, um, I'm so glad that you made that decision on your own and that I didn't, that I didn't force you into it. She was glad she didn't have to ask, but she was thinking the same exactly. thing. That's pretty cool. Right. By the way, well, if you've I was just the available daughter, yeah, I'm sorry. You, that's okay. I was just going to let folks know who may have just joined us that they're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9:30 a.m. The answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio, and we're talking with Jana Panaritas, who is sharing with us her story of caregiving for her mom, how she ended up doing that, and then launched Age Wise Podcast. And we're talking about where that's going and how you can interact with that as well. So you spent three years, you said, uh, uh, caring for your mom. Uh, was she frail? What was happening with her health? Well, it was it was confusing at first because she was so grief-stricken that I was unable to interpret some of her behaviors. Uh, her, her behaviors were clouded by her grief, and, and, and specifically, she was sleeping a lot. She was extremely depressed, but she was also very forgetful. She forgot to turn off the stove sometimes. She left the oven on. Uh, she, she was just exhibiting classic dementia behaviors that were complicated by her grief. And I didn't know enough about either of those things, grief or cognitive impairment, to really know how to interpret them. So I waited, my sisters and I um, waited, decided to wait, and after six months we had her tested. She went through a three-hour neuropsychological exam, and there was not an immediate diagnosis. In fact, I know this is very common with folks who eventually get an Alzheimer's diagnosis. Uh, the neurologist in, in our case, our, our first neurologist, was re very reluctant to uh, diagnose her as having Alzheimer's. And um, so the, the important thing to note was that even though I couldn't identify specifically what was wrong with her, I knew that she was not going to be safe on her own because of her grief and because of her absent-minded behavior, which I only learned in 2012 when she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's with what, what, what she was dealing with. Well, let me just um, um, interject here that I want to, for those that might be listening, I want to say what a wonderful thing it is that you did. You took her down and had her assessed because so many times people go into denial um, and, and you don't always get an immediate diagnosis, but the fact that you went down and made sure it wasn't something else, it wasn't something reversible, it wasn't a vitamin B deficiency or a urinary tract mm -hmm. infection or something like mm -hmm. that, that assessment was really important. And the other thing, Carol, and, and Jana can't see this because it's radio and we are not uh, FaceTiming, uh, you smiled and shook your head yes when she said the doctor was reluctant to diagnose. And Lucy, uh, who's watching us on FaceTime as well back there in Canada, shook her head yes as well. Why? Because that's so common, and it's still so common. Um, you know, unfortunately, we don't have a successful intervention. There's no cure for many forms of dementia, whether it's Alzheimer's or Lewy bodies or Parkinson's. And so the Alzheimer's diagnosis is a, a very difficult one for which there are no answers. It's a very long conversation, and doctors don't have time for long conversations. Um, and the testing is still getting there where they can make a firm diagnosis. So hedging their bets and hoping it's not Alzheimer's or, or just not acknowledging it. Mild cognitive impairment is a stage now that we do acknowledge. It doesn't necessarily mean Alzheimer's. So, um, but it's still, it's really hard to get that diagnosis until the symptoms are much worse. Did your mother know what was happening, Jana? You know, my mother was so distraught over my father's death that I don't think it really sunk in. And to be honest with you, 
his death was i mean she his death was the most difficult thing in her life at that point so i don't think it really registered with her and i don't think she really cared because she was so grief stricken that um you know nothing nothing could rattle her beyond that it, it was really quite an interesting experience for me because she was she was checked out in so many ways and uh, quite quite i should say quite different than the mom i grew up with she was um, an amazing woman. Both of my parents were very interesting people. Of course, they're my parents, so you know you might expect me to say that. My dad was an attorney, and my mom was a freelance writer. She had worked for 25 years as a volunteer at the White House. She had worked through three or four different administrations. She and my dad had a really magical life, but she told me quite literally after he died, my life is over. So I don't think she really registered or was concerned with the effects of her dementia. Um, well, we were just in such uncharted territory on so many levels. And I think you pegged it right when you said that she, her functioning, because depression complicates any kind of dementia. It's going to exacerbate it and make it much, much worse. Stay with us just a minute. We're going to come right back to you. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. We're talking with Jana Panaritas on our Caregiver SOS on Air hotline, talking about her podcast, Age Wise, and her experience as a caregiver for her mom. And we will continue this story in a moment right here on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Thank you very much. Talking both on-air and off-air here in our Caregiver SOS On-Air Studios. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and we're talking on our Caregiver SOS On-Air Hotline with Jana Panaritas, who's describing her journey as a caregiver for her mom. 2012, she's diagnosed uh, with Alzheimer's, and uh, I gather, just trying to put the dates together, she didn't live much longer after that. No, actually, my mom's still living. Oh, Cool. Yeah, she's very much alive. You know, I, I have to say that those were the hardest years of my life. I didn't um, mean to put her in the grave there, so I'm glad no. she's living. <laughs> <That's> okay. <laughs> no, well, we haven't made that clear. Um, no, the reality is, is that, and I can't overstate this, I know I'm not the only person who has done this, but so often as the children of older adults, we step in, and I, I really feel like my mother, I, I really uh, brought her back from the brink. Um, I was actually inspired to move in with her in large part because I was very concerned having been well aware of the fact that when when you lose a spouse and you've been married for that long, it often happens that the, the, the surviving spouse dies soon afterwards, and I was terrified of losing my mother. Yeah, funeral at, directors right will tell you father. usually... Usually within a year, often that's what yeah. happens. And and I was not going to allow that to happen, not on my watch. So um, it, it, it really was an incredible journey that my mom and I went on together. And I'm so grateful that I still have her. She's 87 years old now, and she lives here in the West Palm Beach area. She actually just moved in with my younger sister, who lives in West Palm Beach. And she's she's got dementia, but it's not as pronounced as it could be. You know, her Alzheimer's is very slow progressing, so she's she's forgetful. There's no question about that, and she repeats herself. But she's got a wonderful temperament, and she wants to live. So I'm going to help her have a great time while she's still here. So how then does that lead? You mentioned when we first started talking about this that you really didn't know much about uh, caregiving. You didn't no caregivers, you didn't hear much about it. Uh, how did this lead then to your AgeWise podcast? Right. Well, um, I had a background in media production, and I wanted to do something really different. I wanted to connect caregivers with each other, and more importantly, as somebody who I've been a writer my whole life, I wrote a book, I've written some screenplays, I'm basically a storyteller, so I knew the power of stories. And I just actually, my first interview was with my mother's, um, my mother's psychiatrist, the neurologist who diagnosed her. And he's a very well-known, um, he's the director of the memory care clinic at Johns Hopkins University. His name is Konstantin Likesos, a good fellow Greek. Right. And I just started interviewing folks uh, on the year. I thought, well, let's do, let me do something different. I had done radio broadcast in college at WRUV-FM up in Burlington, Vermont. I went to the University of Vermont. And so I love radio, and I just thought, what can I do to shake up this conversation, and what can I do 
in, in a new space. So, of course, digital disruption is affecting every business. And I thought, let me try and do a podcast. And I really just started recording these conversations as a way to raise awareness around this issue and to connect people with each other so that listeners could hear stories that sounded familiar, um, that could get tools uh, and information and tips. And I also wanted to give caregivers the opportunity to reclaim what is essentially a data-driven narrative. And when I say that, I mean that, you know, we hear a lot about caregiving. We all know the numbers, 43.5 million unpaid family caregivers, 5.5 million people in the U.S. who have Alzheimer's, 15 million Alzheimer's caregivers. But who are the people behind the numbers? So I wanted to have these stories come out because, you know, the people who are behind, there are people behind those numbers. So I wanted to share these stories and and say, look, here's what it's like. Here's what's happening. Here is, here's my story. And these stories really challenge us to think differently about people we think we know because of a narrative that's been fed to us that is very powerful, but it's incomplete. You can't know what caregivers are going through just by the data. Uh, so this is really a form of community engagement for me, and it's allowing caregivers to shape the narrative. So what are some stories from your podcast that really jump out? What's really caught? What are some that you, know, you remember? Well, um, you know, I speak with people all over the world, and, of course, that's the power of the Internet. Um, a while ago, I spoke with um, a, a gal in New Zealand named Billy Jordan, who started um, a dance academy for older adults. And her uh, organization is called Hip Operation Dance Academy. And her story was the subject of a documentary film. And uh, I interviewed Billy um, from the tiny island of Waikiki Island in New Zealand. And she told this amazing story of how she survived an earthquake in Christchurch, New Zealand, and moved to this tiny island off of Auckland, New Zealand, and she was so devastated by the earthquake that she survived uh, that she moved to this tiny island off the uh, coast of Auckland, New Zealand. And most of the folks that she met, felt she could relate to were the older adults because both she and the older adults had death on their minds. Billy had survived the earthquake, and these older folks were, that was going to be the next chapter in their lives, <laughs> she said. So... She wanted to uh, help these folks feel more empowered and also change the narrative around what it means to grow older. You don't just, you know, fold up your tent and start looking at photos in her mind as you get older. You continue to be active. So she started this dance academy for older, uh, older folks on the island. And it's, it's been really an uh, amazing process. She is redefining aging. Um, I spoke with a gal in Toronto named Catherine Harrison, who wrote a wonderful children's book called Weeds in Nana's Garden about dementia. Her mother had Alzheimer's and died of Alzheimer's, and Catherine wrote this wonderful children's book in order to explain dementia to children. Um, I interviewed a while ago a 50-year-old gay New Yorker who came to terms with his father's Parkinson's, and learned to let go of old battles uh, that he had with his dad um, after his father became, after his dad's Parkinson's became worse. And he grew up in Connecticut. And um, after his, you know, he became a, somewhat estranged from his parents because he was gay. And after he came out over the years, his parents were more accepting, but he still, you know, had a bit of tension with his dad. Um, as his dad, Parkinson's grew worse. Um, this chap who requested that I not use his name in the interview, uh, which I I honored that request because, above all, I really want to preserve the dignity of the folks I interview. Uh, so on the show, his name is Tim. Uh, he, you know, he learned how to let go of some old battles with his dad that he'd been fighting. Uh, he'd go out to Connecticut and visit his parents' house, help them. He would do chores that he did as a child in order to help his parents once again. And, you know, here was this New Yorker who, who had had a full life and found himself being his parents' parent. I, mean, I could go on. I've, I've interviewed young people. I mean, 
you know, the reality is, and it's Rosalind Carter who said this, that um, caregiving affects all of us. She said there are only four kinds of people in the world, those who have been caregivers, those who are currently caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need caregivers. So caregivers, caregiving affects all of us. Um, I just want to say one other thing. I interviewed a 24-year-old who wrote her first play, uh, first full-length play called Mourning the Living that opened up in New York. It explores the toll that Alzheimer's takes on a husband, uh, uh, the toll that Alzheimer's takes on a husband with the disease and his his anguished caregiving wife. This is a 24-year-old gal who was inspired to write this story after spending summers working at Home Instead Senior Care in Omaha, which is the largest senior care organization in the world. And that organization was founded by her parents, Paul and Lori. And Mikhail Hogan, the 24-year-old, chose, and I thought this was very brave, uh, as her first feature full-length play to take on this subject of Alzheimer's. Yeah, we had, her on a, we had her on our show, and she was an oh, amazing, amazing you young go. woman. Yeah. Right. He was just about to. It was just about to open. Yes, it was now opening. you made me curious about yeah. following up with her. Wow. Yeah. So, so Jana, yeah. uh, if folks want to hear your podcast, uh, I, I just googled it. They come up on SoundCloud. Uh, right. How do you support yourself? You can't support yourself with free podcasts. Good question. Well, I'm actually working part time right now. Um, I happened to score a really great part time gig, uh, so that's keeping me afloat. But I am now in the process of looking for sponsors for the show. So um, that's in the works, and I'm hoping to get support from a couple of different organizations that I'm going to approach. But, you know, it's a labor of love, and uh, I'm supporting myself with some outside part-time work, and um, I don't need a lot. You know, this is a, 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 a passion, a passion of mine, and I think it's really important for people to have a voice and so I'm happy to give it to them as, as long as I can. And thank, thankfully, I'm very grateful that I have a part-time job. Now, I didn't find a, a website for you. I just found the SoundCloud uh, uh, copies of your show. Do you have a website also on AgeWise? I do. I do. Um, folks can engage with the podcast through my website. It's agewise.com. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Z, as I always say my Canadian mother says, Z, A-G-E-W-Y-Z.com. That is my website. Um, if you you can find the show on iTunes or Stitcher, uh, the show is also nationally distributed on the Speak Up Talk Radio Network. So if you go to speakuptalk.org or speakuptalk.org, I can't remember what the website is for them, but uh, the Speak Up Talk Radio Network also carries the show. And as you look for folks to interview and topics, uh, how, how do you come across them? Just doing a lot of reading. Yeah, I have um, set up some alerts with Google to send me news articles that have keywords that I've chosen. So I'm always getting uh, ideas for who to interview through news articles that I read that come to me in my Google Alerts feed. Uh, I meet people on Twitter, on Facebook. I have friends who know friends. Uh, I, I have, you know, having worked in the entertainment business out in L.A., I still know some people out there. You know, when you get to be my age, and I'm 57 years old now, when you get to be my age, you you know a lot of people. <laughs> and as I said, um, caregiving affects all of us, so it's not hard to find people who have stories. Well, I, you know, this I, I, I can't wait to dig into some of your past podcasts and hear some of the stories. I'm glad to know that I can move to New Zealand and continue dancing um, <laughs> in my old age. It's very important. <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully you don't have to have had a hip operation to make that happen first. No, but you have to be at least 65, so... Oh, that won't be you a problem. Know. She's, not, she's not there yet. Not quite. Not but there I, yet. But in my okay. old age, I'll go to New Zealand. Hey, Jenna, thank you so much. Uh, Jenna Panaritas, we really appreciate your time. And I just went to your website, and it's pretty cool and uh, simple to navigate. And uh, it, it does, as you said, give access uh, to all of your podcasts. So good luck and keep up the good work. Well, Ron and Carol, thank you so much for the opportunity to have me uh, have me on the show, and thanks for the great work that you folks are doing uh, well, on your on your website and your caregiver SOS. Thank you so much for having me. You take care. 
uh, Janet Panaritas. We really appreciate the chance to talk with her. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman on Caregiver SOS on Air on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. If you're Medicare eligible, have I got a great deal for you. Absolutely free, and it's full of fun. You can explore all of the stuff at the new Witty on Broadway. Join WellMed for WellMed Day at the Witty, 10 a.m. to noon, Thursday, September 21st, and you'll enjoy the new Witty and a chance to meet all of the great folks at WellMed. Free food, too. Join us on September 21st at the Witty, 3801 Broadway. No registration needed. For caregivers and healthcare professionals, the 2017 WellMed Charitable Foundation Caregiver Summit is for you at the Whitley Theological Center on Oblate, November 9th, 8.30-3. Featured speakers include AARP columnist and psychologist Barry Jacobs on helping seriously ill loved ones and caregivers. Dr. Nicholas Musi, Farshop Institute, gives us the latest on research on Alzheimer's and aging, and Cynthia Hazel talks about mindfulness. Attendance is free, but Registration required at caregiversos.org. Social worker CEUs and nursing CNEs available. Well, here we are with Take 10. We follow each of our Caregiver SOS on air programs with Take 10. And what we did, we begged Lucy Berlach, who was on last week, to stick around for Take 10. And we pre-recorded this segment so she didn't have to go to Canada and come back. So she's here in our Caregiver SOS on-air studios. I'm Ron Aaron. Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us on our hotline to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, a nationally known psychotherapist, expert on not only addictions but caregiving, and our co-host here, Carol Zerniel. For a topic that... uh, uh, really can, uh, I, I think, get a whole lot of people involved. Setting boundaries. You need to do it. We've got little kids at home, as you know. So whether it's little kids or you're a caregiver, how do you set boundaries and what should they be? Well, I think it, you're, it's a very good question. And we talk about, you know, offense being the best neighbor. Um, and so, Jamie, why are boundaries important? Why are we even talking about them? They're extremely important because it's a pandemic issue that caregivers cannot say no. How's that? I mean, it is that these, again, that like we talked about last week and weeks before that, there's family dynamics that occur when we're a child and those who haven't sought therapy or really gone into a reflective mode, and they become, you know, people-pleasing, and they accept anything that's in front of them, and they believe they should be the hero and put on the Superman um, cape and jump into the telephone booth and jump out and save somebody, and they forget the fact that they have to be able to have boundaries. And you cannot take care of yourself. You can't take that oxygen first. You can't self-care unless you learn what boundaries are. And boundaries mean that you are standing on two feet and not on one. What would be an example, Lucy, of of boundaries that need to be set and get violated over and over again? Well, I think when I think about boundaries, I think it's right what you said, Jamie, and it's very important. When you look at this, there's two people playing here, okay? And one does not outweigh the other. So setting boundaries really has to do with that. If you want to continue caring and being a caregiver, you have to think about yourself, too, and there's a weight, you know? There's a weight there. So in order to have that, in order for you to continue, in order for you to be well, you have to allow yourself to set boundaries because what's going to happen if you don't? Um, For example, if you don't set boundaries and you never say no and you don't sleep at night and the person and and you're going here and you're going there, you're going to fall apart. So give me some concrete example of what what would be an area that would be a boundary that people need to think about. Well, I remember one lady in particular whose husband did not want to have anybody helping in the house, you know, or giving her the respite. And basically, she uh, he said no, and she sort of accepted it. And we had we sort of talked about it in in uh, in counseling of what that does mean. What is that going to happen to you? And she started to recognize that if she doesn't have the opportunity to get on her own, she's not going to be able to continue. So for her, for this particular person, it was very important. And we talked about that she be very honest with her husband and tell him. You know, I cannot continue doing this. And if we do get somebody, and it's not only going to help you, but it's also going to help me. That's a good point. Jamie? 
Yeah, and to Lucy's point, you know, when we do this, just for instance, just because somebody asks you to do something doesn't mean you should do it. And in caregiving, that should is, is often there. But what we tend to do, and again, this is, again, to, to Lucy's excellent point, is when we do or overdo, if you will, if we actually start doing everything and not able to say no, we literally rob the opportunity from our loved one to grow their own self-esteem in this journey that they have with a chronic and terminal illness. We rob them from actually developing their own skill set, their own ability to meet us halfway. You know, without boundaries, we tend to burn out. And the definition of burnout is actually working harder than the person in front of you. So it has to be a two-way street. It has to be a 50-50 endeavor. And that's how, A, the caregiver takes care of themselves, and that's how the care receiver also feels their independence and takes care of themselves and grows self-esteem in spite of looking at a fearful journey. Well, you know, at the first of the segment, we were talking about, you know, setting boundaries with children. But just as with children, you know, in families, without boundaries, we can encourage and facilitate bad behavior. Um, and that can be our own bad behavior. It could be the bad behavior of our loved one. So in other words, if somebody is very, very negative, it's easy to get in that negative rut, whether it's us or the person that we're caring for. Um, and unless somebody holds up the mirror and says, look, you know, we can't go on like this. This is a marathon, and we can't be down every day, and everything is not bad every day, and I can't say yes to everything that you tell me, or you can't say no to everything I suggest. I mean, every once in a while, we have to kind of stop. I like this analogy of there's a weight, there's two people in it. Um, but, every, you know, we can have bad behavior on both sides. And so sometimes just stopping or having somebody call attention to the fact that, you know, this is not healthy. This We need to stop. We need to draw a line, and we need to course correct because we're going in a negative place, and we want to be positive as much as we can. And, and for some of the caregivers, uh, Dr. Jamie, do they know when those boundaries are being crossed, or do they just think they need to do it all? Well, they do. here's how they actually know uh, what's going on, I think, and yet have a very difficult time accepting it. And that is something we talked about last week, which is guilt. One thing we need to understand about caregiving is that guilt is going to be normal. It may be a barometer of self-esteem, but it's something that's normal. I mean, unless you really are enlightened and taking care of yourself, mind, body, and soul, in therapy and dealing with yourself and, and growing, um, guilt is natural. It's, a, it's kind of the ego's sneaky way of coming up on us. And it keeps you trapped in a, in a false world of being a hero. So I think guilt is our first barometer that we realize that, you know, things are, are happening in that manner. So you can acknowledge it, know it feels normal, but make sure when that happens, start setting the boundaries with yourself. And that's meaning take care of yourself. Get into that support group. Go out and walk, if you will, and chill out a while. Um, call somebody who you're close to. Uh, rekindle a friendship, et cetera. I think it's also imp very important for uh, healthcare professionals to understand the culture that a person comes from. Because sometimes the guilt doesn't come from yourself. The guilt is put on by expectations of other family members as well. So I think it's, you know, many times people feel guilty and they don't want to feel guilty, but how do I deal with family members, others who make us feel like that, that this is my responsibility, regardless of whether I had a good marriage or not, it's my, I have to take care of this man or I have to take care of my mother or my father. So I agree with you. But I think it's also a responsibility of healthcare professionals to be able to understand where these people are coming from, to ask the right questions, and to help support them. In, 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 it's not a matter of not feeling guilty, but recognizing where that guilt comes from and how much can they take. And I really strongly believe that when someone, and I'm sure you all agree with me, when someone is sick in a family, the whole family is sick. It's not just one person. Well, yeah, I th you make yeah. a, a very good point because, particularly when it comes to on the healthcare side and boundaries, you know, the idea that um, a healthcare professional can ask you, um, as you mentioned last week, to give an insulin shot to your mother or to do some kind of wound treatment. You know, it, not everybody is capable of doing that. And healthcare professionals, as caregivers, we need to set boundaries and say, no, I'm sorry, I. 
I can't do that health care task. That's more than I am able to do. And so setting boundaries doesn't go just with the family members, but it's also about your relationship with the health care providers and what they're asking you to do. And, and Jamie, the health care providers need to understand that it's okay for the caregiver to say, I'm not comfortable doing that. Absolutely. And, you know, I think Lucy brought up the, the greatest four-letter word in, in the world of caregiving, and that's expectations. So forgive me that I can't count, but it really is a four-letter word. And expectations um, are the seeds of resentment. And what we need to leave behind us, whether it's from a family member or a loved one, or it's self-imposed simply from those ghosts and goblins we haven't dealt with, is we can have no expectations. And that's what it's like to be in the moment. And that's what it's like also to be mindful and, and to meditate and get into self-care. Expectations that we have are the sort of phantoms, those windmills to Don Quixote that we're going to see. And so having them is, is really, really troublesome. Well, you get the last word in, and I want to thank you for that, Dr. Jamie. And Lucy Berlach, thank you so much for sticking around for another Take 10, and we look forward to seeing you on your next visit uh, to the States. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Or to Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. <laughs> well, you go see Jamie in Fort Lauderdale. That's, that's right. Take, Jamie. Take 10 is a worldwide <laughs> initiative. Exactly. For Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. Thank you for joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air right here on 9.30 a.m., the answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net and join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS on air on 9 30 a.m. The answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it, but with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com